Well, as you know, we are studying the book of Daniel. I'm sorry, I just got a news update. That's weird. Russian, this is, this is a big deal. Russian President Vladimir Putin issues unconditional ceasefire and calls for a withdrawal of all forces. He says he has had a religious awakening and from now on will live only for the glory of King Jesus, who is Lord of Lords and Savior of sinners. Y'all don't believe that, do you? That did not happen. But something stranger than that happened 2,500 years ago. A king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of all the world as far as he knew. He was not aware of any lands that he was not the ruler of. And even with that position of power, there was no army that he was aware of that he was not the commander of. There was absolutely nothing that could threaten him. His town, his city, his uh, castle had a huge wall around it, but that's not enough. And so he built another wall around the whole city, and that wasn't enough. And so he built an enormous wall around the countryside that actually even went over the Euphrates River so that his country could not be sieged. The water was running to it. They, they had farms inside. They had beautiful hanging gardens. His wife liked flowers, and so he created one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, beautifying the, the city of Babylon. He was the greatest king that he knew of that had ever existed, but he couldn't sleep well. And he had a nightmare. And he called for Daniel, who had interpreted his nightmares before. And he said, Daniel, this is what I dreamed. I dreamed that there was this huge tree. And under the shade of this tree, all kinds of animals lived. And they they nested in the branches. And they lived under its shade. And they were all so happy. But then the, the tree got cut down. And there's nothing but a stump left. And the stump stayed there for seven times. And Daniel went white as a ghost. And he goes, oh, no. And somehow, and this is about 30 years after the last chapter we read, by the way, somehow in that time, Daniel had become affectionate toward the king. And he said, oh, king, may this dream come true for your enemies, but not for you. For you are the tree. All nations of the world live under the peace that you've brought. It was a peace brought by, you know, conquest, but we're not going to go there. And uh, everything is at peace because of your kingship, but... Something's going to happen. The Lord's going to cut you down. And you're going to have the dew of heaven wetting your hair for seven times. We don't know what seven times is. Uh, It could be as short as seven weeks. It could be as long as seven years. It's probably around seven months or maybe seven seasons, which would be about a year and a half. We, We really just have no idea. But for seven times, you're going to be out. It's a number of perfections, complete. You will be out eating grass, just living outside. And the king goes, huh, okay. And, And Daniel says, please, I beg you, repent. Repent of your pride. Don't ask the Lord. The Lord, he said through Jeremiah, he says, when I give warnings, if you'll repent, then then I'll relent and not send everything I warn you of. And the king goes, huh, okay, thanks. Goes back to bed. A year later, God gave him a year to repent. A year later, he's up walking on his outer wall. 
and he's just feeling it. Am I not the king of everything I have seen? By my own hands, I have built this wonderful, beautiful kingdom. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, it's all about to be taken away from you. You were a fool and you did not repent. And because you have taken credit, it's all going to be taken away from you. And the king was struck with madness. Um, in this madness, he, he believed that he was a cow. Now, that, that sounds weird. It almost sounds made up. But I, I, knew, I knew of a guy, I guess he's still there, in Whitfield's uh, Mental Illness Institute in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, who, because he took too much LSD for years, believed he was an orange. And all he did was roll around, begging people not to peel him. So things happen. We just don't know. But uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was struck with madness, and he believed that he was a cow, and he lived outside, and he didn't groom himself, and his hair grew long, and his nails grew long, and he ate grass until his sanity was restored to him. And when his sanity was restored to him, he read, he uh, proclaimed these words. He wrote a, tra uh, a tract. He wrote a tract and sent it out all over Babylon. Worship the king of heaven. For he alone is truly God. So please stand as we read these words of the tract that King Babylon read, wrote. And I want you to see that pride is the most repugnant of all sins, and only God can heal it. Hear the word of the Lord. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom lasts from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among all the hosts of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay, to his, stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, and my counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and even more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and all of our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. Pride is the most repugnant of all sins. It's the wellspring of all sins. And only God can heal it. Let's start out here talking about, you know, what's wrong with a little pride? Why is pride the first of the seven deadly sins? Why would God hates pride so much that he says in Proverbs 16 that uh, he who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to me. And those who know Hebrew better than I do say that word, the particular word translated abomination is, is, there's many words you can use, and that one in particular is just the vilest of them all. 
That's a word that God reserves for those who sacrifice their children to Molech. That was an abomination. Having a prideful, arrogant heart is an abomination to me. Why? What, what makes it so bad? Uh, there's a lot of confusion about it. I'm, I was thinking about that this morning, actually, in the shower. You know, the, for whatever reason, the song about uh, the U2 song about Jesus, Hitler, and Martin Luther King. It's a pretty funny group. And uh, they named the song Pride. They're like, well, what's wrong with pride? And, and the, reason, the, the, the problem with that is we confuse pride with a lot of things. Pride is not self-confidence. Pride is not uh, self-respect. Pride is not joy in the work of your hand. A lot of times we'll say, you know, you spend all day mowing the yard and trimming it and weeding the gardens, and you look back and you go, you take pride in it, you know, and that's not the, that's not the pride we're talking about. That's actually enjoying the work of your hands. That's very godlike. God did that. Or you can, you know, look at your children and take joy in them, that they've grown up, that they made it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of graduating going on right now, and, and people are taking pride in their children. It's not a sinful kind of pride. It's, it's a joy that their children are now adults. And, and those aren't the things we're talking about. We are talking about exalting yourself over God and others. We're talking about exalting yourself over God and everybody else. And it really is the, the root of all sins. What was Adam's sin? Why did Adam sin? Because he wanted to be like God. He didn't want to listen to God. He didn't want to submit to God. He he wanted to be like him. He wanted to be equal with him. And we do that all the time. We, We want the credit. We want to be considered the, the masters of our fate. We want the credit for what has come from our hand. And so we're basically, we're committing the sin of plagiarism. You know, we're taking credit for something someone else did. Back in the uh, 19th century, there was a slave uh, named Nathan Green. And Nathan Green um, gave, uh, was, was the slave of a Lutheran minister, and they kind of became friends, and the Lutheran minister uh, took a sip of Nathan Green's whiskey one night and said, man, I can't, that's amazing. How did you make that? And so Nathan Green, or Uncle, uh, Uncle Nearest, as he was known, uh, taught him how to make whiskey, the whole process, how to distill it, the ingredients, the recipe, the, you know, the amount of time it takes, taught him the whole process. And Daniel Craig then became known as one of the greatest, you know, became in his little region, that he had a really good recipe for uh, whiskey. And he taught it to a guy named uh, Jasper Daniel. And Jasper, or Jack, as his friends called him, became one of the wealthiest people of his generation. Billions of billions of dollars have come in through the Jack Daniels whiskey family. You think any of that? Do you think a single penny of that came back to Uncle Nearest or his family? Of course not. It was stolen. It was just taken from him. And, and that's what we are doing every time we look over something and say, without thanksgiving, this is the work of my hands. I did this. We're taking the glory away from God. We're plagiarizing. We're plagiarizing. And when we, when we take pride, take credit for 
who we've made ourselves to be. We're, we're taking the glory away from God. And it doesn't take long to understand that, right? I mean, when did you tell God, hey, by the way, I want to be born in America. Is that okay if I'm born in the 20th, 21st century when America's really prosperous and there's, it's pretty easy for, for me to, to work my way up? Did you have that conversation? I have a friend who's a, uh, he was a Division I athlete, top 1% of the athletes in the world. And he, um, he did 23andMe, the little genetic test. You know, he's really into it. And he got his results back, and he sent, them, you know, sent it to every place you can send it to find out all the health stuff from it. And he was just crushed. He was crushed to find out that he had the particular gene that was common among professional athletes. And I was like, well, yeah, look at you. And he goes, I thought this was just due to my hard work. Now, he did work hard, but I know a lot of people who worked hard. I don't know anybody else who looks like him. You didn't ask for that DNA. You did not request it. You did not build the schools in which you were educated. You did not hire the teachers that taught you. You did not pick out the parents that raised you. You are not the reason you survived COVID. How many of you had COVID? How many of you survived it? Why? Why did you survive it? A million Americans died from it. A million. Why not you? I know you don't know the answer because nobody knows the answer. I mean, most of the people who died were older, but not all of them. And some, most of them have pre, uh, pre-existing conditions, but not all of them. And you don't know why you survived it because the doctors who studied it every day for the last three years don't know why you survived it. So you certainly didn't do that on purpose if you don't even know what you did. So who gets the glory for that? How often have you thanked God that you didn't die from that? It wasn't your work. And God says the problem is not that he's prideful over it or he's mad about it, but you're forgetting who you are. You're his beloved children. You survived COVID because he loves you and he wanted you to. And you're not giving him the glory for it. And by not giving him the glory for it, you're, you're changing your, yourself. You're changing your own heart. You're corrupting it. You're bending it. Pride ruins our relationship with God because it makes us basically forget him. We're not able to enjoy anything. When good things happen, we say, well, it's about time. I deserved it. When bad things happen, we just look at everybody else that it didn't happen to and raise our fist and go, well, I was better than him. Why me and not him? Pride ruins us. Pride ruins our relationships with each other. Pride means that pride is not thinking that you're good. Pride is not being uh, you know, self-confident or taking joy in your work. Pride is thinking that you're better, that you're better. It's not enough that you be pretty, you have to be prettier. It's not enough that you're smart, you have to be smarter. It's not enough that you're righteous, you're more righteous. You look down on the people around you. 
You take the, the credit away from God and you, you steal it for yourselves and then you immediately look down on everyone else who hasn't received from God what you've received. There's a great example of this in the, uh, the Critics' Choice Awards this year. There's so many awards, it's hard to keep up with them. But this one had enough of a scandal that I remembered it. Not the slapping. The Critics' Choice Awards, uh, Jane Campion, who's a wonderful director, makes beautiful movies, um, she received the award for the best director. And so she got up on stage. I don't know if she'd had too much to drink or what, but she's going around, probably, let's just assume. She's going around and she's like talking about everybody in this crowd and, and thanking them and thanking everybody who's, happen, ha, uh, who's helped her over the years. And then she sees Venus and Serena Williams. And, you know, they were part of a big movie this year, or there was a big movie made about them. And she points them out and she says, you know, thank you for paving the way for so many women. You have really been a role model for women. But you didn't have to compete against the men like I did. What's she doing? You, me. You, me. I want to make sure everybody knows that I've done better than you. And that's the way we live, isn't it? Somebody drives by in a nicer car where they're a bad person. That's why they got that car. We were at a charity auction last night, and people were paying just ridiculous prices for things. They really were. On one, one table paid $500 for a, shot, uh, for a shot of Fireball. I'm like, dude, you could buy like 20 bottles. Not that you want to. But anyway, you know, it's for charity. And at one point, Bianca looked at me, and she goes, I just assume everyone in here is embezzling. They couldn't have made that money honestly, right? Because I have worked hard and been honest, and I don't have that kind of money. Me, them. Me, them. Paul talks about that spirit in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you bragging about it like you earned it? Everything we have is from the grace of God, straight from his hand. He is the father of every good work, every good gift. And, and pride's worst form, the, the, the form of pride that Paul is talking about there, the form of pride that, that Jesus regularly talked about is spiritual pride. It's a pride that makes everyone around you live in your disapproval. Everybody around you feels your disapproval because they're not as serious or as good or as holy as you are. And there's no denomination that's free from that, right? You know that, right? Uh, you know, Pentecostals think they really, they, they, they look down on everybody who doesn't speak in tongues, and Presbyterians look down on everybody who does. I mean, it doesn't matter what, what denomination you're from. We all have things that we're falsely proud of. And it's a terrible trap. When you get in that, you don't, even, you don't even know that you're doing it. I feel sorry for them. Jesus, uh, Jesus told a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Y'all remember that? Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And he lifted his eyes to heaven and he prayed loud so that everybody could hear him. Thank you, God, that, I, that, that you've saved me. Thank you, God, that I'm, I'm righteous. Thank you that I'm not even like that guy. I mean, that sounds awful, but it's a parable. 
And we all say that. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. I mean, I'm better than him. I come to church every week. I fast every week. I pray. I give a tenth of everything that I earn. And I feel Jesus then says, but the tax collector, all the tax collector did was beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it was the tax collector that went home justified. And I feel sorry for the Pharisee. I mean, he's doing everything right. He is having devotionals every day. He is giving away money. He is praying. He's doing everything right. But he lacks the one thing. He lacks the understanding of who God is and who he is. And everything he does is useless. And he doesn't understand why he's not getting what he deserves. Pride is, it destroys us spiritually between us and the Lord. It just is a cancer. Pride is destructive. It not only destroys our relationship with God, it destroys our relationship with each other. Because again, like I said, it's, it's divisive. Pride, uh, Proverbs 6 Verses 16 through 19 says, the six things are an abomination to the Lord. There are seven that he finds detestable. What's number one? Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. You know exactly what they look like. You just had a pair of eyes appear in your mind, didn't you? Arrogant eyes that looks upon others as just not, not quite as good as me. Pride is what always causes divisions. Pride ruins relationships because you're always waiting for the other person to admit they're wrong. Pride ruins uh, families because, uh, they're, they're because, because people are always competing with each other. Uh, pride ruins individuals. Uh, I'll never forget going through Setting Captives Free, uh, a program for those who are struggling with pornography, and it said that I think it was lesson about lesson eight. Started talking about the importance of confessing your sin to your people around you, community. And he said, a lot of people will die from pornography. They'll be destroyed by it. Not because of the pornography, but because of their pride. They will not ask for help. It's that pride that just looks at other people and says... Why are you the way you are? And we throw our disapproval upon them. Well, is that me? Am I proud? Do I find myself being like uh, Elizabeth Bettis and and, uh, Pride and Prejudice? There are so few people that I love and even fewer that I approve of. Is that me? I got a few questions just to ask and, and examine ourselves. If, if, if this sin, is, if it's so cancerous, if it's so toxic and destructive, we need to know if it's us, right? Well, how do you view others? Do you view them with disapproval or delight? If someone else has good fortune, are you jealous or are you delighted for them? I, I experienced one of the most righteous minutes of my life this week. I was on the golf course with Jeremy Fair. We had a pastor's retreat over at Shangri-La. Everybody from the Presbytery was there. And, and uh, Jer- we were on a par three. And Jeremy and I are, are kind of neck and neck as to who's the worst golfer in the Presbytery. We're right there, neck and neck. And, and he hits the ball. 
and he hit a really good shot, much better than he usually hits. And it, it hit the green, and, it, and we were, had a, a uphill view of it. And honestly, I'd already gone, and I'd missed the green. So when he hit the green, I was mad. And it started rolling straight at the hole. And the closer it got to the hole, the madder I got, until it went in the hole. And when, for some, when, some reason, when it went in the hole, I was so happy for him. I, just, I was just jumping up and down, snapping his picture, yelling for him. I was, and, and I was like, there wasn't a hint of jealousy. Like, I know I'll never be able to do that. I was just happy for him that he got that moment. Do you know that feeling of being happy, genuinely happy for someone else? That when you're in a, a conversation with someone else, do you, do you listen to them and show concern for them and empathy for them? Or do you just wait to talk? When you see something that needs doing, trash on the grounds, do you go over and pick it up and throw it away, or do you get angry that no one's done that yet? When you see something uh, wrong, do you, uh, when someone does something for you, do you immediately thank them, or do you look for what's wrong? And really, I mean, the two words that, that someone who's proud can't say, thank you and I'm sorry. Are you able to say those words? I mean, someone who's truly been with the Lord can thank you. I got a thank you note here from uh, prison here in, in Oklahoma. Um, in Helen, Oklahoma? I don't even know where that is. But uh, do send me a thank you note, a card. Went to the trouble of buying this card. He didn't have much money. He's in jail. And spilling it out because I offered to come preach for them. That's all I did, make an offer. I don't even know where it is. I didn't go. He was so blown away that I would offer that he sent me a thank you note. That's a guy who's been converted. He doesn't have a sense of, of ought. He doesn't have a sense of, of entitlement. He's delighted that anyone would know he exists. Are you proud toward others? Are you proud toward God? You know this. No one else can answer these questions about you. Are you joyful and overwhelmed by his grace? Or are you angry that he hasn't given you what you deserve? Are you light, knowing that you are in his hands? Or are you anxious because you're really worried he's going to get the future wrong? And if you, he would just let you have that steering wheel, everything would be fine. What's deep down? What is deep inside there? Is it a sense of, wow, thank you, God? Or is it a sense of, what's wrong and it's about time? Do you have a problem with pride? Yes. You absolutely do. If in your heart you answered that question, no, then you are deeply in trouble. Um... There was one pastor who told a story about having a woman knock on his door, and the woman came in, and, and he greeted her, and she came in. And she said, Pastor, I'm sick of this confession of sin every Sunday. I want you to know I haven't sinned in 10 years. He said, are you proud of that? She goes, of course I'm proud of that. He goes, gotcha. If you don't have a problem with pride, I feel really sorry for you because you don't even know how bad it is. But if you do, i got good news for you. God promises to humble the proud. 
He promises that anyone who humbles themselves in the sight of the Lord, he will lift up. He humbles us. No one else can. I, want you, I, I need to, parents especially you, I need to talk to you for a second. He does not anywhere in the Bible say it's our job to humble other people. And I think that's a real danger, honestly. We, we, we tend to get into this habit of every word that comes out of our mouth is a correction for someone else. Constantly correcting our spouse, constantly correcting our children, never praising them, never just enjoying them, never listening to them. It is not your job to humble the proud. God does that. You can't do it. It'd be wise for you to stop trying. God humbles the proud. That's the last thing that, that Nebuchadnezzar says. All who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that's good news for us. What did God do? How did God humble Nebuchadnezzar? He let him act like he really was. Nebuchadnezzar was acting like a beast. In his heart, he was a beast, eating up everything that he saw, taking, taking, taking. Never giving thanks, never uh, being joyful, just being a, a beast. And God said, okay, I'll let you act like a beast. Let me show the world what you are. You're an ox. Go live like one. There's a great children's story where, God, where the same thing kind of happens. There's a child in the story. His name is Eustace Scrub. I identify with Eustace Scrub. If you ever play a chess match or anything else against me, I'll, my name will probably be used to scrub on the screen. I, I, I get his, him, and he was selfish, and he was greedy, and all he ever thought about was himself. And he went in uh, to a cave one day, and he saw a, there was a dead dragon there. And Eustace, he didn't think about all the people with him. He just started trying to get that gold into his pockets, and he fell asleep. And he fell asleep on a dragon's treasure, thinking dragonish thoughts. And when he woke up, he was a dragon. And at first it was kind of fun to be a dragon. You can scare your friends, get people back. But after a while, you get lonely. And the dragon began to miss friends. And he wanted to change, and he couldn't. And one night he sees the, the God figure in the story, Aslan, and, and Aslan says, well, you, you need to undress. And so Eustace rips off his skin, and there was another skin under it. And he ripped off his skin, and there was another skin under it. And he kept doing it until Aslan said, you're going to have to let me undress you. And he took his fingernail and he poked it into his heart. And Eustace said, it hurt. It hurt. And he ripped the skin off of him. And that's what it feels like to have God humble you. It hurts. And he rips the skin off of us because he loves us. What, what does he do? He reveals to us that the beautiful message of the gospel. It's not, it's humility without despair. It says, when I was the most intolerable, when I was the most dragonish, then you loved me. That's the importance of Ephesians 2 and the reason why I quote it to you so often when you were dead in your transgressions and sins because of the great love with which he loved you he made you alive together with Christ he loved you then take a deep drink of that take a deep drink of this gospel that both humbles us and gives us incredible security you are more sinful than you ever feared everything you touch you pollute and you are more loved than you had ever hoped 
And the Lord of the universe himself is just delighted with you. And he was, his, he, he, he's crazy about you. That Jesus was rich. He was in heaven. He was in his castle. He was on his throne. But he became poor for you. He, he poured himself out for you. You have tried to make yourself into a God, so God himself made himself into a human, and even went further than that. He made himself less than human. Isaiah 52 says that Jesus was so marred that he did not look like a human. He went down to the beast-like level for us to raise us up so that we could live with God. That is the message that humbles the proudest, You're so broken that God himself had to die to fix you? And it elevates the the poorest. You are so loved that God himself would die to fix you. I'm so proud. I'm so proud that he had to do that to humble me. And I'm so loved that he would do that to humble me. Let's pray. Jesus, our Lord in heaven, we pray that you would humble us now. That you would show us the relationships that we've been in, that we've let pride destroy. Show us the places where we have taken credit for what you have done. Give us the joy of those who are overwhelmed that they have found a love that they could never deserve. Forgive us for our silly, foolish pride. And remind us that we are your children and that you laugh and sing over us. We pray in Jesus' name.